Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really amazing founder that uh, you know is going to be telling us about the rocket ship that he is riding. You know, he's going to be telling us about how he passed from academia to the business side to really the entrepreneurial side of things, how he closed his Series B during, you know, the craziness in this macro environment, and then also uh, really taking a, a technology from university and really bringing it to market. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Rob Delfling. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. Glad to be here. So originally in Philly, where the cheesesteaks, uh, you know, are, are made. So uh, tell us a, a little bit of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Uh, it was great. You know, I, I actually, as I was growing up, um, spent a lot of time with my grandparents. And uh, specifically, I actually spent quite a lot of time in uh, my grandfather's basement there. So my, my grandfather was a World War II vet. He was a radio operator. Uh, I spent a lot of my childhood in his basement with him making radios, uh, doing electronics and sort of learning from him. He he was a self-taught electrical engineer. And, you know, in, in his basement there uh, growing up, he made radios. And it was always amazing to me how you could take a bunch of random components, slap them together. And then next thing you know, you're sort of hearing or communicating with someone across the world, you know, it's all of these little pieces, all these high tech pieces that ultimately let you connect with the person on the other end that you're not even seeing, uh, you're not even, you may not even know. So it was quite an interesting experience in that respect. Now, now in your case, you know, like what got you into engineering? You know, what was the, the whole thing about problem solving and, and stuff like that? What, what, what was the, uh, the roots, you know, coming, you know, triggering I, that? I, I definitely always liked making things and it, it always physical things, you know, so I never really got too much into coding or, or software or anything. I always liked making physical structures or devices, you know, even as a younger kid, I sort of would make um, skate parks in my backyard. It drove my parents crazy, but it certainly was fun to figure out how you got all of the pieces together, built things and that satisfaction of seeing something that you went and thought out and and did and and built um it it was that piece and then it was really my my grandfather again who sort of crystallized that who galvanized me in terms of thinking about this and in becoming a an actual engineer um you know it was that that piece of taking technology putting it together but then ultimately still being able to connect on a personal level through the technology that you've built having that technology be interacting with people or having people interact with the technology you built. And so I wanted to make products. I wanted to make something that was real, that people could hold, could use, and would ultimately impact people's lives. So then let's talk about you going into academia. You know, you doing your PhD. Uh, now you're like really pushing into applied physics at Harvard and, and things like that. And, and, and tell us about this experience. Why academia out of all things? Yeah, I mean, I, when I when I started out my undergrad and I was doing it in engineering, I, I thought a little bit about, um, you know, maybe just going into industry and 
building a career in in one of these large engineering companies. You know, in in the Philly area, you have companies like like Lockheed or other other large engineering companies. Um, but ultimately, in my undergrad and in my master's, I got a chance to do research in a lab. And when you're doing research in a lab, you're starting to look at doing something and seeing something in a way that people have never been able to see before. It might be something completely niche and, you know, boxed off in a corner, whatever it is, but that feeling of seeing something for the first time or finding something out uniquely for the first time. And then also the the free reign that you have in terms of building your own direction, building your own research, building something new. Um, so I got a, a good experience in my master's of of doing self-directed research in a group at Drexel. And that really made me want to continue pursuing this, you know, going down the PhD route, ultimately leading me to Harvard, where I then started, um, you know, my my research, which would ultimately help lead to the formation of the company, Metalens. So, so there, was a, there was a paper that you guys uh, put together. And uh, that paper ultimately, you know, made the, uh, you know, a good splash, you know, on Science Magazine and, and you were getting flooded with calls. So what happened there? Yeah, so the, the group I was working in was working on this completely new type of lens, completely new type of optic, right? So cameras and lenses have been around for hundreds of years. Lenses have been around for thousands of years and really haven't changed much. All of the other technology around us has been changing in in very dramatic and and drastic ways but lenses that we're using in cameras that you use in your cell phone still have all of the same sort of fundamentals as Galileo's telescope essentially it's it really hasn't changed much and in the group I was working in they were looking at a whole new way to think about lenses a whole new way to make lenses a way that you could make these lenses in order to bring giant scientific, expensive scientific equipment into cell phones, into mobile devices for the first time. Um, and so within that group, what we did is in 2016, uh, we took this MetaSurface, which is the core technology that we have now commercialized here at MetaLens. And we were able to essentially show that with a single MetaSurface, that's just one single flat optic that is about a thousand times thinner than the width of a human hair. So this really tiny lens, we could actually produce images that were as good or better than a $5,000 microscope objective. So you're talking about, you know, the highest end microscope objective that's out there. And we were able to, with this single tiny chip, um, to actually have better images than you would get with that. So at that point, you know, I was thinking still of continuing along the academic route. I was thinking of being a professor, you know, publish as many papers as I can and go and continue along the research route. And what we what we got is actually when we went out and published this paper, we got on the cover of Science Magazine. The cell phone OEMs, the cell phone manufacturers realized this can completely change the way that we see and sense from our mobile devices. It can change the cameras in our devices. It can make them smaller. It can make them cheaper. It can bring medical testing, medical grade equipment, scientific laboratory equipment, entirely new sensors into cell phones for the first time. And so when we published this paper 
and were on the cover of Science, um, which even though it's an academic journal, because of how big of a journal it is, how how well known it is, it reaches well out into the more popular world and VCs and entrepreneurs tend to follow it. Um, so we started getting cold calls from the largest cell phone OEMs in the world. We started getting cold calls from some of the biggest semiconductor companies in the world because ultimately the way we make our optics lets you bring lenses into the semiconductor foundries that are making chips, that are making the electronics today. And at that point, you know, it was sort of an organic growth of the company because we weren't trying to force an idea into a company. We, we basically had a technology that people had seen the promise on paper and now they saw it in reality. And, and basically we were, we were getting offers from VCs and entrepreneurs. And uh, that's the point where I said, well, you, you know, even though I was thinking of going this academic route, um, given this opportunity, we've got to see if this can really make it in the market. It, it's one thing to have the interest of VCs. It's one thing to have the interest of OEMs. It's, it's a lot different to then go and take that and get it into real devices to see your product out there in the world. So at this point, MetaLens is born. So what is the, uh, what does that journey of literally publishing a paper to making that paper tangible, like an actual business, what does that transition and sequence of events look like? Yeah. So the, the first thing it looks like is having to finish my PhD. So uh, it was, it was a funny experience where we actually founded the company before my PhD was finished, but my, my advisor, Federico Paso, he is, uh, he was very adamant that I, I don't go the, uh, you know, the, the Zuckerberg route or something else like that and, and drop out and just sort of pursue it. So he was very adamant that I still finish with my PhD. So the very first thing was to figure out how I could get my PhD done. And uh, there was even a, a funny point where, you know, we had, we had now taken in some additional uh, initial seed funding and uh, my advisor sent an email to all of the investors saying, no one, no one contact Rob until he's done with his PhD thesis. So that, that was the first hurdle was, and he even held me hostage with another paper. He, he made sure before I finished that I would even publish my last bit of research. So um, that was the first big hurdle. The, the other piece was then trying to figure out how you took this really technical topic and something that, you know, presenting at an academic conference and the audience that you have there is completely different than having to garner the interest of venture capital, right? So it's, it's, you can't get too caught up in the technical weeds. You have to be able to speak intelligently to that, you know, especially if you're going through the, the um, due diligence phase and you have a technical counterpart on the other side, you need to be able to spec speak confidently and and technically, but ultimately to the VCs, you need to sell that broad vision. Uh, you need to sell the the 10 years down the road. How is this going to change the way that people in, interact with their world and their devices? And that part was, I think, one of the, the biggest challenges as we were getting the company off the ground was how do you take this deeply technical hard tech, right? This isn't software. This isn't fintech. This is deep physics hardware that now has potential in real devices, how do you then communicate that in a way that gets investors excited, gets them to see the future? And, you know, for 
academics, that's not always an easy thing for us to do. We'd much rather geek out on the the hardcore physics and science. And I think that that was the other the other big challenge. And you know, um, then of course, understanding what it meant to take in external capital, what that meant for uh, the company, what it meant for the founders, all of those things were really steep learning curves, which for academics, that's not, that's not there. You, you don't necessarily think about that sort of ownership and what you're giving up and everything else. You're, you're publishing papers. You want to give credit to your colleagues and you're citing other folks. So it's, it's a very, that was another big challenge for us. So, so for the people that are listening to, to get it, what ended up becoming Metalins? How are you guys making money? What's the business model? So where we started out and, you know, what, what we do at Metalins is if you look at traditional cameras, traditional optics, you might have four or five different lenses in a camera to make a good image. With a meta surface, you can replace the functionality of those four or five different lenses with just one single flat optic. So this lets you dramatically reduce the cost and the size of really complicated cameras, of really complicated sensing systems. Um, and the other big piece of this is that it allows you for the first time ever to move the production of optics. All of the optics in phones today are still molded and shaped very much the way they were hundreds of years ago. And there's a particular um, set of manufacturers that make those. But what you can do with our technology is actually start printing these like you print computer chips. So it lets you move optics into the foundry. And so the way that Metalens ultimately is, is making money and has been able to get product out there is in the beginning, what we've actually done is to license the technology. So we've, we've partnered and we've made an announcement here uh, back in 2022 with ST Microelectronics, a giant in the semiconductor world. Um, and we essentially worked with them to bring up our technology in their foundries and they sell advanced 3D sensing modules. They've sold 1.5 to 2 billion of these modules to date. So, you know, extremely high volumes, consumer type volumes. And what they saw is the potential for our optics to greatly simplify and improve their systems. So what we started out with was a licensing model actually is to to find a way to license the, the technology because ultimately um you know one of the biggest challenges that i think for for hard tech especially when you're talking about getting into consumer devices is that hurdle of the customer will often see the value in your powerpoints and can say well great yeah i think i think this will work but they have tens of millions of devices they need to act the same that can't fail in the field um, so we started out by licensing and that, that let us quickly get the technology validated in real devices and leverage a, a bigger partner to start the business off essentially. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either 
knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. So obviously, you know, for something like this, you guys need to um, to get some money too. So how was the um, the journey of capitalizing the business? Because I, I believe you guys have raised about 50 million. So what was that journey like? Yeah, in the early days, again, this came back to the fact that we are very much a hard tech company, um, and you know there is a, a t- there still at that at that time as much as now, a lot of investors prefer more software. Um, you know, it's it's easier to quantify, to value, to to see how you can get big returns on. Um, so in the early days, we we actually looked to a lot of corporate ventures, even for seed funding. So some of the investors in Meadowlands are companies like uh, Intel. So Intel Capital was one of the early investors. Applied Materials, another giant in the semiconductor world. Uh, 3M Ventures. Um, but then also the the other journey was along, you know, selling the idea, selling the concept because we did want some. Uh, pure VCs in the company. And so finding the right fit there where they were folks that were still investing in the hardware side of things that that understood sort of at a high level, at least the the technology. Um, I think that was one of one of the biggest things was getting those connections and then ultimately um, figuring out how we tell our story in a way that could connect with with someone who is an investor looking for the return. So for the Series B that you guys did, you know, it was quite a interesting moment in time. You know, it was literally the um, in the middle of the crazy economic downturn too. So how tough was that uh, experience? And what what did you learn that maybe you can share with the folks that are listening? Yeah, I think one of the the toughest things was, you know, when when we started out and we were thinking about our Series B, we we now had an initial product out there in market. It, the technology was real. We, we found a place that we wanted to scale because ultimately we realized that we can build complete new systems, new sensing solutions around this unique technology that we have where we can actually couple algorithms and software that are unique to the hardware we're making. Um, so we were really excited. We were really ready to go out and build. We had the initial product out there in market, um, you know, with the we had some revenue coming in through the the licensing, um, and when we started thinking about fundraising, it was when everything was really great in the world. The venture capital money was flowing like crazy. It was uh, February of 2022. Companies were getting fantastic valuations, and the public market 
looked like it was going to hit um, all new highs. And, you know, obviously, as you start pulling everything together, it's about three or four months of making sure you're all ready and set to go. And by the time we started going out and fundraising, it was at the point where things had uh, kind of fallen off the cliff. The public market was crashing and then sort of the trickle on effect meant that the private markets were sort of having a little bit of a recoil. Um, you know, so it was certainly a hard time because ultimately uh, everyone was a little hesitant. And we we definitely, even though we had this traction, uh, even though we were now in in devices being used by consumers, we took an academic technology and put it into real world applications, real world devices. Um, you know, people people were very hesitant about where they were going to spend their money, and it it actually pushed away from hardware even more because that's a a longer term sort of bet here. It's it's a lot more complicated. It often requires more capital, obviously, than a software company. Um, but one of the things that we found is number one, I think. It's it's often it, you're going to have to go through a lot of no's. I'm sure you you hear this all the time on on your podcast, and I'm sure you've experienced this yourself just as an entrepreneur. Um, the number of no's and the amount of times that you're going to get sort of that defeated feeling is is always much greater than the yeses you're going to get, and that sort of is just the nature of it. But one of the things we found is that being very selective about who you talk to. Um, finding the right fit from the investors. But we also were in this sweet spot as a company. So, you know, what was happening at the time was really early seed stage companies were kind of driving this bubble in the in the venture world, right? So they were getting the type of uh, valuations that sort of were somewhat separated from the reality, you know, there was no real proof point, but there was so much money in the private world that these companies were getting a really, you know, really crazy valuation. And then you had the other end of the spectrum, which you had the companies that were closer to going public, but now the public market was having a huge downturn. So investors sort of shied away from those. And it, it did push investors a little bit to the middle where we had a technology that was proven. It was in market. It was real. But we were far enough removed from the public market. And what we had to find and what we had to do was really sell how we could go from, say, this licensing and, and component business to something that would ultimately um, be, it, we would be able to build and grow and make into a, a, a company where we are selling complete solutions to the end OEMs, to the end users. and. Um, I think that was the thing that we had to to learn was number one, how you select the conversations you're going to have with investors, um, because I think that ultimately lets you use your time more efficiently and hone your message a little bit more. If you're just doing the sort of go after every investor, it, it it's not going to be a directed message to that particular investor's um, investment thesis. Uh, and then how do you tell the story? Because we needed to be able to credibly say, okay, we have some initial traction, but now we're going to be a, a complete solution company. And we're going to be able to be putting devices that are complete solutions into cell phones and turn this from something that is a, a 3x return into something that can be 10x, can be 15x, can be 100x. 
Now, in this case, you know, like obviously with with any investment, you know, there's a real big bet on a vision, no? And 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 not all the investors will do that, but then also employees, customers, everyone, no? So, in that regard, when we're thinking about vision here for Metalens, imagine that you were to go to sleep tonight, Rob, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Metalens is fully realized. What does that world look like? Yeah, to me, I think where Metalens is able to impact things. So again, what we do with our technology is to be able to take complicated, bulky sensing systems, optical systems, and shrink them down for the first time to a size and to a price point where they can be in consumer devices. Um, so I think what, what we can do at Metalens and what we're doing at Metalens now is we're essentially changing the way that people can interact and understand the world around them. And that's by essentially being able to take devices that have been locked away in scientific or medical labs and be able to start putting them into every phone. So I think one of the things that we're doing is we're, we're essentially bringing an entirely new information set, set that uh, to date, humans and billions of people have not had access to putting that on phones. And I think that um, what we're able to do is really make it so that you can use your phone to go and start doing medical assays. You could use your phone to um, diagnose whether a growth is cancerous or not, have that be sent off to a doctor. Because with these optics, with these metasurfaces, it lets you take these extremely large, complicated devices and put them into form factors, price points that make it compatible with mobile, with consumer devices. And, you know, that that's a place where everything is being pushed more and more to the phone, right? Everyone is using their phone for more things, whether it's first the camera, it's become everyone's camera now um, for payment, for digital payment. Uh, everyone is now using their phone for payment, whether that's with credit cards or, or something like that. I think so what we can do is to bring even more complicated devices and put those into phones so you can potentially monitor uh, your blood glucose. You can, every phone could have secure face unlock to make your payment and make your identity secure in your phone. Um, and I think that's that's really where we see Metalens coming in. It's It's changing the way that people are actually interacting with the world around them because now you have these devices that, um, frankly, haven't been available to the to the masses before in every single phone in the world. So now imagine, you know, that we were talking about the past, but doing so with our lens of reflection. Imagine that I put you into a time machine. And I bring you back in time to that moment where you are thinking about breaking from academia into the business world. And you're able to have a chat with your younger self. You know, maybe we're talking about back in 2017. And you're able to have a sit down with that younger Rob. And you're able to give that younger Rob one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now, almost seven years in? That's, that's a, a great question. I think, um, I think the... The thing that I would I would really focus on and I would really emphasize is that, you know, when when you're starting a company and when you're going out there, you can often be over eager to have your technology adopted. So obviously, you need to go out and you need to sell your technology. You you need to be an evangelist for that technology. 
Um, but oftentimes you want it to be adopted so badly that the customer will come with a value prop and maybe you actually even somewhere in your mind understand that that is not a strong enough value prop for your technology to really win the business or it's not the most valuable thing you can do with your technology but because you want that technology to be adopted you you want to make product you want to make something real you will often go along with the customer and i think we did spend a lot of time going down routes that basically at the end of the day didn't pan out because we we were so eager to get the technology adopted but you know when when you know what it is uniquely that you can do that no one else can do it may take a little bit longer in now having to build all of the pieces around it um it may require a little bit more uh just sort of not necessarily interacting or or selling to customers but it can ultimately lead to an even bigger impact because you truly understand your technology you're critical of the the value prop that the customer thinks you have so it makes you learn more and it makes you think more about the application the overall impact to the end user rather than just okay can i meet this spec that the customer is putting at me that might only be a a 5% improvement over their existing solution right and that's not going to be disruptive that's not going to really win the business and and make your technology stick make you change something about the world so we spent a lot of time pursuing things that you know in retrospect we were pursuing because the customer said yeah I, I think this could work or um but when if we were more honest with ourselves about what we could truly do with our technology, I think we would have um, we would have been a little bit more focused early on, and and not just tried to get everyone to adopt, get everyone to buy in. It's okay to say no to customers at times. I think that's sort of the the biggest lesson here. It, it it's okay to say no to new projects because saying no, pairing things back, that's where you ultimately then can focus on building something that is is truly impactful that can have really long-term and really broad impact. So Rob, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, certainly through LinkedIn. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, you can go through our website. Uh, I'll be at Mobile World Congress coming up. I'll also be at CES coming up. Um, so there are a number of different ways that, that people can reach out um, and always glad to either have a, a chat or um, I still, even though I, I have gone away from the academic world, if uh, if it's a more technical person, glad to go into the physics of what it is we're doing and why it is we can do what we can do. Amazing. Well, hey, Rob, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Likewise, Alejandro, and thank you so much. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. 
You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.